Welcome to the OmniTalk Ask an Expert series with Chris Walton, the series where I go deep on a regular basis with a panel of experts to understand what is on their minds most about how the future of retail is changing. Today, my OmniTalk partner in crime, Ann Mazinga, joins me for this one because we have a really special set of guests today, two people near and dear to our hearts who happen to also be the sponsors of our weekly OmniTalk Fast Five podcast, and that is David Ritter and Kristen Kohler Burroughs from the AM Consumer and Retail Group. David and Kristen, welcome to the show. Yeah, I mean, for those for those that are listening, I mean, and this is crazy. It's crazy that we're doing this. I'm so excited about this. So, like, for those that listen to our our regular OmniTalk Fast Five every week, yes, David and Kristen are actually the ones that put us on the spot each and every week with some usually really tough question. And for example, last week's question was really intense, and I was really glad Emily intern got to talk about it first and foremost. But we are actually going to interview them and to the tables a little bit here and uh, yes. put them on the spot with some of our own spotlight type questions. So we're going to ask them everything they know in and about retail because they are retail consultants by practice. And some of them have actually been in the retail business as well as operators. So we're excited to talk about that. And we're going to we're going to try to see where they think all this stuff is going. What what lies ahead in the future from the chairs atop which they sit? What are the things that we should be thinking about and try to even maybe close some terms of how we all should think about things. I love this. Well, Kristen and Dave, I think you need to give our audience, for those who may not know you, a little bit of background on each of you and about A&M. Kristen, maybe let's start with you. So, you know, I think Dave's going to talk about the chapters of his career. I like to think of, I really have books, like, and probably <laughs> the first book um, that have my career, which was made up of a lot of chapters, is I was I was actually an operator for about 20 plus years. Um, I spent the majority of that in the athletic footwear and apparel industry. So um, my my parents and friends um, used to call me a shoe dog. Um, and that was largely because I spent a lot of time in athletic footwear companies. So I spent the first five plus years of my career at Adidas. I ran their second largest category globally called cross training. Um, I did get to spend a lot of time uh, with professional athletes, which my kids today wish that I was doing that now versus then. Um, and then after business school, I ran the Chuck Taylor business for Converse. Um, I was president of Keds, um, president of GH Bass, and then um, recently before joining AM, I was the CEO of a, a small consignment retailer. So really, you know, in addition to just loving shoes and sneakers, uh, what attracted me to all of those opportunities was the ability to sort of figure out strategically where to drive growth, either for the category I was managing um, or the business or the brand and how to marshal kind of the resources and initiatives to deliver against that. Um, so I, I love just to solve that solve that quote unquote engineering problem. Uh, and then um, after my last stint as a CEO um, and I was looking around for my next opportunity, um, I serendipitously was introduced to AM and just loved the fact that AM brought to the table kind of a, a secret sauce of operator meet consultant. And given that I love to solve problems and just get excited about solving a diverse group of problems, um, thought that it would be really a, a great career opportunity to, to help companies from the outside versus the inside. 
Christian, how unique is that? Like that element? Because yeah, I can remember, and by for everyone listening, both Christian and David, Harvard Business School graduates too. So go, you know, go, go, go HBS. But but like I can remember back in school, like everyone's flooding the consulting. Here you are, other side of the career, and you're going into is that operator piece of it very different in terms of how a consulting group operates? No pun intended, but I mean I think Dave will go into that a little bit as well. But yeah, I, I mean I, I um I think it gives us it, it gives us a different perspective in that what we come to our clients with is things that really can get done and can be operationalized. Okay. Um, and if you have certain expertise from a certain space, you know, optimally you're getting to the core root of the problem that you're trying to solve and a solution that much quicker, more quickly. And why you so perfectly fit with OmniTalk, I have to say. I mean, oh, we're, we're about being real real retailers uh, talking about real retail news. So I think having an operator background and being a consultant is a perfect matchup there. Uh, Dave, I want to hear a little bit about your background. Tell us about you and uh, what you do at AM. Absolutely. So um, frankly, you probably have two of the, the most unique backgrounds from a consulting perspective. We are kind of Great. oddballs a little bit, but yeah. Um, my background, is, as Kristen was mentioning, I kind of have three chapters in my background. Um, so I went to West Point and was an Army officer for the first six years of my career. Um, I was in the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment as a field artillery officer. I was stationed in Colorado Springs. Um, it was an awesome leadership experience, uh, and I learned a lot. But frankly, um, it's a young man's game, so it's not what I wanted to do longer term. <laughs> um, so I went back to, to HBS, as Chris mentioned. Um, coming out of HBS, my second chapter was I spent 15 years as a partner at McKinsey in a retail practice uh, out of the Chicago office. Um, while I was at McKinsey, I led the store operations practice, and then I led the grocery practice for three or four years uh, at the end of my tenure. Um, most of my client work kind of sits at the intersection of retail technology and operations. Um, so during my time at McKinsey, I had a, a great opportunity to serve some of the biggest names and grocery, drug, food service, um, on many of their biggest strategic challenges. Um, it was a great run, but frankly, after 15 years, I, I was ready for a change. So that kind of brings me to my third chapter. Uh, about 18 months ago, you know, I got an entrepreneurial itch um, to try to build something myself. Um, so I joined Alvarez and Marsal, the, the bigger A&M is what we call it, um, to help build out the consumer and retail practice um, which we think is something new, exciting, and, and differentiated, frankly. How new is it, David? How, how long have you guys been doing it? We, so I think theoretically we've been up and running 18 months, but okay. um, over the last year is where we've really, we've kind of scaled. Um, and we're, we're now entering a phase where I think, you know, we, we are, I guess, probably 15 partners and almost 100 consultants deep. So we, we are, uh, you know, we, we believe that now we are kind of a formidable presence in the market and, uh, and, and we are going to market. I can tell you a little bit more about you know, what we're trying to do at, at CRG, if that's helpful. I think it's probably yeah, a absolutely. good segue. Yeah, um, sure. so, so at our core, you know, we, we are trying to help clients serve many of the most complex challenges they're facing. Um, and and we, we, we phrase it as help them achieve their maximum potential. Um, we think by helping our clients achieve their maximum potential, we can also, um, from a values perspective, really help grow our people and our communities to their maximum potential as well. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I think has brought many of the partners and, and our, our team together is is a shared set of values. So we really believe in being client first. Um, as Kristen mentioned, we 
we have an operator like pragmatism. So we want to like, we really, we don't want to do projects that sit in a binder on a desk. Like we want our, pro our programs to be implemented and to drive client impact. Um, and that brings us to the, uh, the third thing is just, we are all about impact that, that our clients achieve. What kinds of things are you guys seeing right now? I, I really want to dig into some, I mean, the last year has been insane, but as people are coming to you, whether they're in a good spot or, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do next, what are, what are you seeing that are really standout moments for you and for your clients? So what we're seeing really is those, those companies that are a little stuck um, and either have to, as Dave mentioned, sort of that second bucket, have to figure out how to drive some more efficiencies, um, improve processes, take out costs, and, or they're thinking of, look, we have an opportunity to reassort our assortment given the shifting customer trends. We have an opportunity, we need to be more effective on the marketing side. So what can we do um, to improve our marketing effectiveness during these times given we're not, we don't have a lot of new customers coming in. Let's, what can we do to maximize our, our current customers? Um, so I think in terms of, you know, to answer your question and really, you know, the types of, of problems we're seeing is also a subset of the, 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 the type of industry or space they're in. Sure. Um, you know, Dave can talk to a little, you have the opposite problem in grocery, right? Where it's like, how do right. we actually build our infrastructure fast enough given, you know, the accelerant uh, and, you know, the growth that, that we're seeing on the grocery side. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dave, that was going to be my question, actually. Like, I'm curious, like, as Kristen, as you talked about, like, are you seeing a general proportion of, say, how do we just do things a little bit better against, say, overall transformation? And then as you bring, like, a like you just mentioned, a, a category like grocery into it, is it a little bit of everything all at once? Like, how, how do you lay that landscape for us right now? Yeah, no. So I spent a bunch of time in grocery and CPG, uh, food CPG specifically. And as you can imagine, some of the, the trends associated with eating at home and, and customer stockpiling have, have right. caused their business to be absolutely on fire. Um, so many of the topics that we're discussing with them are around inventory management. So okay. how do you get enough product on, onto the shelves? Uh, you know, as Kristen mentioned, assortment. So a lot of, um, a lot of the newness and kind of uh, you know, one facing SKUs in grocery are becoming less important. They're, um, they're actually thinking about giving that space back to the, the kind of big fast moving SKUs so that they can stay in stock in that in, uh, in a world where customers are stockpiling. And then the last thing is, or one of the last things is in terms of digital, you know, partnerships with Instacart, uh, DoorDash are becoming kind of bigger and bigger elements of their value proposition. Um, and then how do you, in models where you partner with those folks, how do you actually go to market in a way that doesn't impact the in-store experience? Um, you know, you're seeing a lot of Instacart shoppers cramming right. aisles in stores and making the customer experience for grocery, um, you know, even worse, frankly. Um, so they're looking at network design things like micro fulfillment centers, dark stores, ghost kitchens, those type of, of, of network design decisions. What shifts are you seeing on the, on the back of house? I think we're going to see an explosion and, and, uh, and micro fulfillment centers in the back of overspace stores, frankly, just because yeah. it's, it's so much less efficient to um, to stock while the, the, there's people in the stores as opposed to handle the, the digital commerce uh, via automation. You mentioned Instacart too, in terms of like people being in the aisles and still grappling that question. I know again, CBG and retail as the focus. Like, what do you think is happening there? Like, how does that landscape continue to play out across? Like, how are the, how are how are retailers, but also how are CPGs thinking about that? 
first, I would say, you know, Albertson's recent move to to shift, you know, more more velocity to Instacart says a lot. I mean, I do oh, think yeah, that right. uh, you know the economics of doing uh, delivery yourself are just frankly difficult in the current models for grocers. Um, so I do think in the near term we'll we'll see Instacart and DoorDash is, is aggressively moving into the space. So I think those will be the two names that you see uh, kind of win in the grocery delivery space uh, in the near term. I do think longer term it's a, it's a it's a, a fair question to ask. You know, you hear speculation that Instacart could go direct, um, and obviously that's a you know, that's an interesting question. It's a it would put their core business at risk, so I don't know that they would take that risk, but it's certainly a potential option. Um, in terms of CPG companies, though, we are seeing uh, our CPG clients increasingly investigating a DTC model. Um, the economics there get a little tough, just because you know they tend to be in many cases kind of bulky and expensive to ship. Um, but yeah, there there are. I, I think they will continue to pursue that, and and that DTC and the CPG space will continue to to grow. I want to click in on that. What when you say it gets like talk? What what is what is what makes going DTC so difficult for some of the CPG brands? Well, I think there's two or three things. So the first thing is just that they are they are built to sell to business. They are B two B business, right? Um, so, so having that, that digital front end expertise is not, you know, in their, their core wheelhouse or hasn't been to date. Sure. I think okay, that's that why we're seeing some digital upstarts, um, or, or more digital native brands have a little bit more success DTC initially, just cause it's not in the, the, you know, the, the older school CPG companies, um, DNA. Uh, but the second thing is just, you know, the, the logistics of the DTC model, um, when it's a bulky package and freight it. It is tough, right? Like it's you could be bulk. shipping, you could be shipping um, three zones away via UPS, and that starts getting, you know, depending on how expensive the thing that you're shipping is, the the math becomes difficult to make the economics work. You know, it's it is interesting though because you think of what the footwear and apparel industry I was, was just gonna like ask you twenty years ago, right? I mean, it was a wholesale based business. I mean, the Nikes, the Adidas right. of the world, right? And so similar, right? Their their primary customer was B two B, and clearly the growth there has been driven by a significant shift to direct to consumer, actually firing quote unquote some of their wholesale partners, right, and really limiting the number of partners that they sell to. So the CPG could potentially look to those models to figure out how they got it done. Well, I got to ask you then, because you brought that up, like big announcement from Adidas with your background, like saying that 50% of their business is what going to be online direct to consumer. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you think about that in context of everything you just said? Well, um, I mean, Nike made a similar announcement a couple of years ago and has successfully started to, to build to that. I, I think at the end of the day, and actually one of the reasons why um, I made a conscious decision to sort of shift when I was, was when I was an operator to shift to a retail model that was more um, brick and mortar and e-com mm. was because of the, the control of the customer touch point. It, you know, so figuring how you can keep that customer in the ecosystem and really, you know, from new customer acquisition to retention through loyalty programs, apps, et cetera. Um, and I think what you're seeing is the Nikes of the world really explore um, how they interact with the customer in different formats 
Um, well, I like to say that really the point of sale is the customer, right? So, mm -hmm. so they are going to decide when and where and how they purchase you. Um, and you need to be there uh, in every single case. Um, and wholesale is becoming a smaller and smaller part of that. I think the challenge is how do you set it up so that you can effectively drive profitable sales? So that gets to some of the things that Dave was saying in terms of shifting your operating model and, and infrastructure against that. So there's a major rebalancing there then, if I take it from what you said, Chris, and I think that's important to think about is like, so like, can your hypothesis is, or your, or your, I shouldn't say hypothesis, your thesis from your on the job is that, that there is some physical touch point that matters for a lot of brands. Like it's a pretty hard route to just go DTC. And so companies are going to be needing to rebalance exactly what that means in the physical world, probably, you know, in relation to where they've been historically, is that the type of thing you guys are working on with people as well to try to figure out what is that right appropriate density amount of stores, physical retailing, given, you know, who the brand is and what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's looking at, uh, to your point, what is that optimal channel mix? Um, and then what does that mean for, for how you structure to deliver against that? One area that we're seeing a lot of chatter around these days that we've been talking about quite a bit on the podcast the last couple of weeks is this idea of revenge spending and, you know, what's going to happen now that we have another round of stimulus checks out. Um, obviously footwear has seen pretty marked improvements in, uh, every time one of these, uh, stimulus checks have come out, um, with your background in that category, and as you guys think about how you're going to help retailers approach the best way to, you know, take advantage of, of this extra money being in, in the economy, if that is what actually happens, how, how do you approach that, um, that plan or that strategy with them? What are your thoughts on that? The, the focus with the high income segment of our population will be around those more experiences. Uh, and then again, the industries that kind of rise along with that. I think the stimulus checks, will result in, you know, in sort of your core essentials um, for that segment of the market. So I do think there should be some benefit there, whether it is, it could be a, a replacement pair of shoes, you know, some, you know, replacement jeans, sweater, whatever that you just haven't, that they haven't been able to um, purchase until the stimulus checks came in. And how are you guys helping retailers make the decision on like how hard to go toward that? Because I feel like there's, there's still got to be a lot of residual, you know, last season we had, we were trying to make, you know, t-shirts out of long sleeve shirts and things <laughs> like trying to figure out ways or storing, storing tons of apparel to see if they could sell it this season, hoping that the pandemic would be further along and we'd have vaccines in place. How, what advice are you giving them? Dave, do you have anything that you can think of that, you know, comes to mind immediately? I, I think there's yeah, a lot of people I mean, So I think there's a couple of things that, that we're actively doing. And, I, you know, you guys were talking about apparel, so that's a, a, a nice place to start. So, I mean, I do think that we, we collectively believe that we'll see uh, increases in store traffic, you know, in the next quarter or two in a fairly significant way. Um, I'm not sure if it'll be Roaring Twenties-esque, uh, but it, I, it will certainly be an uptick. And I think that we'll see that across most formats. Um, that said, I think we, we, uh, we, we have the strong leading indicators that suggest it will probably be a value component to that. And then a higher end branded component to that. And that I, you know, in the middle, I think there are some, some real questions 
the middling middle or whatever you want to call it. Um, but what are we doing specifically? A couple of things. So, I mean, we are looking at, at inventory positions. And in some cases, we're encouraging our clients to liquidate. Um, and whether that be using um, marketplaces like eBay. Uh, but you know, the, the notion of, uh, of introducing last fall's uh, product th this summer uh, doesn't really work, right? So I think, I think there is just this pragmatic lens you have to have where you do have to clean out the pipes a little bit. Um, the second thing we're doing is we are encouraging them um, to, it, with supply chains being so challenged, uh, you know, we are encouraging them to make a, a bit of a bet in the in the summer and fall categories. We think there's there's likely to be a, a reasonable uptick. We're even seeing it already uh, relative to last year. So I think you know our advice to our clients now is um, if you were going to make a bet, now is the time to make sure that you have product allocated. Uh, there's nothing worse than a than a bounce back here that you can't actually take advantage of. Um, so we we are doing that. And then the last thing I'll say is is we are still encouraging them to, to, to challenge the role of the store. So e-commerce is, we may see some reversion to the mean, but we still anticipate it being a huge part of, uh, of retail going forward. So many of the things that we were forced to try that weren't the most commonplace, like ship from store, um, BOPUS, we think a lot of those operating models are here to stay. So really getting your store set up where you can, you, you can operate those models in a, in a world where there's additional foot traffic uh, will be important so that your operations don't fall apart as people return to the stores. I was I think too it's important. Um, it's important for for each retailer to kind of reset and say, look, this customer has changed. Um, given that, and given what we think are his or her buying patterns, you know, does it is my value proposition as a brand as a retailer where it needs to be? If not. Where do I need to shift it to? What does that mean for my assortment mix? What does that mean for my marketing spend? What does that mean for my digital platform? So, so I, I do think there needs to be um, kind of almost a clean sheet sort of outside in approach where people are really looking hard at themselves and how and where they deliver value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are all good points. I, I, the point about the point about that, especially when you start talking about curbside, I mean, I just saw I just saw a statistic yesterday. I think it was from Signified, and correct me if I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. they said that of the top 500 retailers in the digital commerce 360 uh, cohort, whatever that is, is 43% of them now are offering curbside pickup as a result of the pandemic, where that number was seven percent before. So I think that speaks to your point, Chris. The big question here, though, you know, you, you take what Christian said, you've got to meet the consumer where, the, where they want you to meet them. The profitability question in grocery, though. So as you as, as, as you guys are advising grocers and you're saying, OK, like here are the three or four things you need to do right now to try to get a handle of the profitability question, which is looming. And I don't think enough people are still talking about that if these new norms do reestablish or do stay established, I should say. What are those things they should be looking at? What's, what's the guidepost that they should be following? Yeah, for sure. And then you layer on, you know, upward pressure on minimum wage uh, on top of all right. of that. So I, I do think the grocery environment is, uh, it, it, it is, has benefited from tailwinds, but, but needs to get ahead of the, the profitability question. So I think the first thing is just network design. Um, there needs to be a model of, you know, whether it's an Akedo like ship from macro DC, ship from micro fulfillment center, pick from store, like getting that network design uh, in a new world with, you know, 20% e-commerce is, is, 
is imperative. Um, the second thing is I think embrace computer vision. Uh, it's early, but I think we will see this coming. Really? Um, and I, I think in two forms, especially with the minimum wage uh, concerns, I think cashierless checkout, you're going to see uh, tried a lot more, and especially as the technology gets better in the bigger box. Um, and the second thing is just literally <laughs> drones, phones, and robots for inventory management. I think you'll see uh, a lot of that. You know, times time intense processes that are manual, like counting inventory. Um, we will see automation using computer vision in a major way. Um, and then the last thing I think is. Um, is I do think there will be this uh, better vendor collaboration with, uh, with Instacart and DoorDash so, to fix the substitution problem. So one of the biggest things that, that grocers are facing is, you know, you could order Diet Coke on, uh, on Instacart, and if they're stocked out, you might get caffeine-free Diet Coke, which is an awful substitution. <laughs> so, some kind of, so some kind of API or linkage that helps uh, – that helps connect what, what the grocery store actually has in stock relative to what Instacart and DoorDash are, are selling from, from that store. Got it. That's, okay. That a lot there. I want to click. Oh my God. We're going we're gonna to have to put in, I think we should put them on the spot because there's, there are some things that were thrown out there that we got to know. I want, I want to hear that on hear their side of this now. So we are putting you both on the spot. We're turning the tables. <laughs> we have one final question for you both. What is something that no one is paying attention to or seeing right now that they should be paying attention to? Kristen, I'm going to start with you. What do you say? All right. Um, so I, you know, I actually think there's, there's, a, there's a couple things. Um, sustainability is out there, right? And you're hearing about it, but I do not think it is loud enough from the partners that we're working with in terms of solving the problem around a consumers are starting to care more and more, especially the Gen Z customer, right? We're so focused on the millennial. Um, and we, we need to start picking up, you know, picking up to talk about the Gen Z customer. And then B, how do you how do you deliver sustainability in a way that's less expensive? Um, and I so I think that that's key, especially as, again, back to the Gen Z customer, I think the, the value piece um, for them is so critical. Um, and they're not currently, right, they're, they're sort of not living sort of the quote unquote best life that their millennial older brother is in terms of, of um, you know, what their, what their annual, annual spend is. So um, I think what retailers need to really need to start focusing on is how to, how to be more sustainable and deliver it around a more value-based price. It feels like that's hitting a different level for us than it ever has. Like, and you, if you've been in retail long enough, you kind of get a sense of when that's starting to happen. Whereas you were here, people talk about sustainability even 10, 15 years ago, but now it feels like it's at a different level. Yeah. What's the low hanging fruit there though? So like you just said what you said about resale, like where should people be focusing? Uh, to bring that effort more to the fore in a way that, that works for them business model wise and a way that works for the consumers in terms of what they're looking for. I mean, I, I think there's some simple things retailers and brands can do tomorrow. I mean, hang tags, how many, who actually reads a hang tag these days? Great point. Right. So, so, yeah. you know, look, hang tags, you know, huge area, second area, look at air freight. I mean, I, you know, we've worked with so many, 
retailers and brands where last minute design changes, last minute product changes, you're air freighting this and that in, um, it, you know, and, and air freight costs. I mean, I think it's something like it's the emissions of an air versus ship is something like 50 times that of a boat. Mm -hmm. So make some simple, quick changes. You crawl before you walk, run. Um, you know, what we say is like, take out the trash, right? Like get rid of the, get rid of the, get rid of the easy stuff, get clean up your garments, you know, clean up your product process. And that's to us a great first start. David, what about you? Give us your, what should we be paying attention to? All right. Well, it's much easier being on the asking side of this equation. No, No, but uh, so listen, I think the pandemic has forced a lot of retailers to have a very inward focus um, and rightfully so, you know, t- safety, difficulty in the new operating model, it, but it has caused us to look more inward and domestic. And I think very few people are, are thinking about the opportunity potential associated with international growth. So s- since early 2020, we haven't talked much at all about international growth. But one thing that gets missed is the back half of 2019, Alibaba opened its ecosystem to U.S.-based commerce. And I think if you just look at singles day alone, the potential for U.S.-based retailers to actually leverage the Alibaba ecosystem and go after the Chinese consumer is an insane opportunity that no one's talking about, but is off the charts in its potential. David, why are people not? We've talked about that on our show. I've written about it in Forbes. Why aren't people doing that? I mean, I even know of companies that have done significant volume with like one headcount and they shut the thing down because they just don't want to manage it. Like you said, they don't want the distraction. Like what is it that's preventing them from going after that more full bore? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is just management headspace. The pandemic hit exactly the wrong time. But I do think there's a a deeper reason. And I don't think that that U.S.-based companies have a very good understanding of the Chinese demographic and the Chinese shopper. Um, so they're frankly, you know, it's a, they're a little nervous that how to position their products to in the Chinese market more broadly. Is it because um, of a lack of digital understanding? Like, I think it's a lack of, of understanding of, of the market more broadly, the consumer. Um, but I think there's also a lack of understanding of the support that Alibaba started to provide in that ecosystem for, you know, retailers from other, uh, other countries. Um, there's a really interesting play uh, kind of coming together there where they'll help you, you know, find the right person to live stream in that market with your goods. Like there's an emerging, uh, I think a real emerging opportunity there for some brands that have been favorite brands in the U S uh, to open the aperture and expand themselves to billions of additional consumers, um, which is pretty untapped at this point. Dude, that's a great point. That's amazing. Uh, those were both great, like sustainability and and, uh, the opportunity overseas. Like, God, I did not think you guys were going to be giving us that today. That was fantastic. Woo. All right. Good. I like that. All right. I I think you guys did a great job, but the real question for you is how millennial are you? Are you both ready to play? How millennial are you on top of that last question? I am ready, but uh, I have to admit, I think I'm going to be ashamed at where this lands. That's, <laughs> that's probably true. You know what? 
th- those last comments will save you, I'm sure, from any embarrassment <laughs> that might uh, be we might be looking at after this one. Score us? Will you actually score us on a? Like, will you give us our millennial age? <laughs> um, Chris and I try. are very judgy, so we'll figure out our own way. We to could come we up could with try some that. Kind of we could try that. Spot. How like old it. are mo- how old are millennials at this point? Like, what what is their actual cohort? I'll look that up as you're asking this first question. Go ahead. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, first question. When you're paying for groceries, are you pulling out a credit card or are you using mobile payment, Kristen? Ooh. I get a big fail on this. Well, does a oh. debit card, does a debit card, can I, is that could be like a tweener answer? Oh, <laughs> I don't even think that tweens are using debit cards anymore. Just Venmo oh, no, and I, PayPal. I, uh, I use a debit card, but I do do online grocery as well. So maybe that can give okay. me a little bit of a better. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, Chris is taking stretch. notes. This is a good try. Chris is taking notes. Uh, Dave. Yeah, no, I'm trying equally as bad. We, we, we do lead with online grocery, but I'm a credit card guy, which is ironic because I'm in the middle of building an engagement where I'm helping a corporate client build Apple Pay into their digital offer. But no, nah, credit card, unfortunately. They'll, they'll get Your lots credit card, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they'll oh. get lots of insight from you as the consumer they're trying to convert. I think this is great. <laughs> exactly. Um, you're, you're, you're living it. You're the mindset. Yeah, right. The right. converting mindset. I love it. I'm still doing uh, math right. on the age demographics of, of Gen Z and millennials right now. So, Ed, keep it rolling. Okay, sounds good. In the last week, we will include groceries since you both mentioned that. How many times have you ordered food, groceries, or drinks from an app? Kristen. Oh, geez. I, you know, we're at four or five times a week. We have Carvel Fridays, which is, you know, we're ordering through DoorDash. Mm-hmm. We do order night on Thursdays. And then I do lunches. I order lunches a couple times a week. So yeah, maybe I'm regaining some millennial ground. This here. is better. This is better. We are picking up some. Except Carvel Fridays. Carvel is like a brand from the '80s. Like, what are we oh, ordering no. at Car- on Carvel Fridays? Car- those what? are the kids. They love it. They each yeah, get their own so little. Really? Yeah. I haven't had Carvel since like 1984. Yeah. What's like, the Carvel like equivalent? Smitty's grocery store. Yeah. Right. There, what's the, there's like a mixed thing. Is it, what is it? It's like the, not a blizzard. blizzard that's, a, that's Dairy Queen, right? The DQ. Yeah. Yeah. There's one at Carvel. It's amazing. I remember in New York, we used to do it on Sundays, but Fridays, I get it. You got to have okay. at least one day a weekend with thing, your Carvel right. hit. Yeah. Okay. okay. Dave, what about you? How many so times I, this week? I'm uh, I'm three, one grocery, two food. I have to admit though, we've recently moved to Texas and we live in the suburbs. So when I lived in downtown Chicago, it was much higher. Um, but we're, we're actually, Texas is opening up. So we're going to sit on patios and eat outside uh, more than we're ordering. That's right. And I always love these questions when people qualify the answers, like with, you know, I used to do this, you know, but now, no, 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 but I used to do this. It's always good. It's my favorite. This next question's the best though. All right, you guys, last question. Uh, if you could only use one social app, which one would you choose and why? We'll keep it going in order. Kristen, start with you. Yeah, I think, you know, I did sort of grapple between Twitter and Instagram, but it's gotta be, it's Instagram. Um, why? Um, uh, I do love seeing all the stuff that my friends post, but I also have to say, I'm like introduced to new brands that way. And I really kind of like it. And I feel kind of cool because I'm like, this brand must be so niche and I, they must be targeting me because I am like so millennial. <laughs> <laughs> um, Why Twitter? Very, Why was it a close yeah. call with Twitter? 
Well, Twitter, I, I do like some of the, you know, from a business politics kind of cultural perspective, I do like reading kind of the Twitter headlines. Um, okay. Yeah. So for more for like news? Yeah. Like seeing what's happening? Yeah. Dave, what's your answer? My answer is Instagram. Um, my mom has become incredibly active on Facebook, which as much as I love her has, uh, has taken quite a bit of fun out of the, the Facebook experience. Um, I, you know, I, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not a, a heavy user. I find Instagram and, and the video portion of that to, to be a more engaging uh, source of content. And then on, you know, the TikToks and Snapchats of the world, I just, I'm not even on them. So I, I, uh, I, I they're not in my, in my uh, choice set. Chris, what does the survey say? Where well, where are we at here? I, I mean, I, before we go, there, I want to ask if Dave has any guilty follows on, like, you know, on Instagram, like, you know, lumber some lumberjack sites, or like, what kind of what kind of guilt, guilty follows that we got going on on Instagram, Dave? And then I'll do the, I'll do the math, I'll do the math kind of thing here. I know he's for those listening. Dave is actually lumberjack Dave, so he's the one. If you follow, that our was show, supposed that to be a secret. Plaid. You just revealed uh, his secret identity. Yeah, I had to Chris. let it go. But. So Chris is officially a snitch. Um, but I, the, the, way that, the way this really manifests itself is uh, we were having a debate on uh, whether or not Eddie Bauer was a brand that was uh, was still relevant. And I, I responded that I actually wear flannels quite a bit and have since uh, been branded Lumberjack Dave. Uh, that was well worth bringing the secret out, <laughs> secret out of the open on that one. Great, great explanation. Dave. All right. So I did the math. So math was never my strong suit, but. According to Google, I think millennials are generally between the ages of 24 and 40 right now. So I don't know, Anne, what do you think? I'm thinking this one's tough. I'm, I'm going to get a solid like 35 for the two of them. Oh, what I was going to say 33. You always 33? go down a couple lower than you think, pretty, Chris. Pretty, we're pretty close. The credit card thing was a little bit detrimental though. Yeah. Right? That and then Dave, Dave's thing at the end where he like couldn't use Snapchat and TikTok without his brain just exploding, which is, he didn't say that, but that's how I interpreted it. So I, I don't know. I kind of hedged towards more 35, but anyway, all right. That was a blast. You guys, um, always a lot of fun. That last segment's always a ton of fun. What, uh, if people, you know, were listening to this podcast and they say, Hey, there were some really interesting points, especially like some of those things we brought up on the end around sustainability over getting, you know, business going in China, grocery profitability. How should they get in touch with you guys? Hey, I, uh, I think the easiest way is to reach out directly to, to one of the two of us. I'm D Ritter, D-R-I-T-T-E-R at Alvarez and Marsal with no spaces.com. And then I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, pretty easy to find. Just feel free to reach out directly. I can be reached at kburrows at Alvarez and Marcel.com or through LinkedIn. Um, my LinkedIn page. Yeah, and we'll put their name, you know, the names will be in the body of the description too of the of the podcast and the videos too. So if you guys want to reach out, just hit them up on LinkedIn. These guys are super cool and they're super fun to talk to and, and very responsive. But hey guys, Kristen, Dave, thanks for thanks for doing that with us today. This is fun. We're gonna actually have you on our Fast Five too. We're gonna put you on the spot in that podcast here up and coming. So loyal fans, wait for that. That's going to be a hoot. It'll be a lot like I imagine we talked about here and we won't, or like it felt like here and we won't even know what direction those questions are coming. But again, thanks to them. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. Again, David Ritter and Christian Colo Burroughs of the AM Consumer and Retail Group. We see it every week. It's still more important than ever. Hopefully we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel here. Be careful out there.